All right, guys, welcome to the wildlife experience. Uh, this evening, I'll be speaking to my good friend, Nate. Nate, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so Nate, he actually is the one who inspired me to start a podcast. <laughs> um, he invited me on to his podcast, which is called the CrocCast podcast, and uh, went on there and had such a good time. I felt very inspired to start my own, so appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered. Uh, so Nate, uh, as with any podcasts, uh, we'll start out by getting to know you a little bit. Um, so uh, feel free to give us your background, um, anything you feel is relevant. Yeah, so uh, I grew up and I currently live in uh, north central Ohio, in a small town called Loudonville, about 25, 2,600 people. Uh, in case you're wondering where that's at, it's basically you draw a straight line from Cleveland to Columbus. And I'll be a little bit to the east and a little bit to the south of the center point of that line. So we like to call that part of Ohio, uh, North Central Ohio. Okay. And in terms of ecology, it's uh, really interesting because we live on the Allegheny Plateau. And very specifically, I live in the glaciated part of the Allegheny Plateau. But just south of where I live is the unglaciated part of Allegheny, the Allegheny Plateau. So I do have, so I just had to go down to the state park like not five minutes from where I'm currently at and I'm in a different, somewhat different ecosystem already. Yeah. So I've yeah. always found Just that, that, that glacial history. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. something, uh, you know, what we're still talking about you for now, but at some point we need to talk about how glaciers have influenced plant and animal communities. Oh, um, yeah. I don't know enough about it, but we'll, we'll, we'll go down that rabbit hole at some point. Um, just, just to touch on the, just the how important that is to understanding what we have now, you know, what yes. the species. Especially up here, more like the uh, Midwest, Northeast. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. So you're from Ohio. So uh, your wildlife career has actually been, or your crop career has kind of been similar to mine. We've worked at sort of <laughs> some of the of, same places and stuff. It's kind of creepy, actually. Yeah, I think you're, you're following me, I think, right? <laughs> Don't flatter yourself. I mean, you're the one following my podcast here. So, right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, we've worked at two places in common. Um, but luckily for me, I didn't have to drive more than, you know, a couple miles down the road for, for the first one. And then the second one, you know, a little bit further. But you migrated here from Ohio just to work with crocodilians. <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but you got your start up in, with Rob. Carmichael, no? Uh, his twin brother, Chris. It's his twin brother, Chris. But you did work with Rob. Uh, no? I've transported a few animals for him. You, and you I did. didn't, okay. And I did, I did help him out. They're, like twin so I, yeah. they're twin brothers, so I, you know, it's probably yeah, just a trust me, dude. Okay, so uh, I went to Bob Jones University for about two and a half years. I had to leave early to personal reasons. Yeah. But, like, a lot of the bad stuff you hear about that school is true but I still enjoy a lot of my time there as well. And because yeah. in large part, that's what got me started in my reptile career because uh, one of my professors there uh, named Chris Carmichael, he had a serpentarium there that I worked at for since uh, my second semester of freshman year all the way to my end of my time there. And in large part, it was like kind of like your standard fair snake and lizard collection. Uh, yeah. you know, we had like a transpecos, rat snakes, lava, Eastern, couple Eastern rat snakes, corn snakes, you know, that sort of standard stuff. Uh, 
we had a big old Asian water monitor named Buddy, who's now at a Thai. He's actually now at Thai Park's place down in uh, Florida. Oh, wow. The land. Yeah, yeah I actually yeah. Uh, delivered him down there, which is another story I'd like to get to. Okay, cool. Yep. Uh, yeah, he did give me these uh, the scar on my forearm. Nice. I'm a freshman year. Yeah. <laughs> got, yeah, so. Uh, but a few of the other stuff we had there, I mean, we had like a red tail boa. We actually had a couple of Burmese pythons that were uh, captured feral animals from the Everglades. Okay. Yeah, the only reason they weren't put down is because they he like they got like, they were caught along with another batch of animals and they were kept for research purposes. And the other batches, I think, is at a research facility down in Florida. Gotcha. But those two are uh, part of a are still they're not they weren't put down because they are part of a scientific re, uh, academic research. Yeah. So I actually got to uh, work with uh, feral Everglades uh, Burmese pythons in a way. Um, so did you get research experience with Dr. Carmichael? Uh, a little bit, not a, a lot. I've oh, never, I've just had really. Cause he got, he's yeah. done some really cool stuff. I understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the next thing we're going about to get to is uh, probably the part that was most academically interesting was he had a large collection uh, well not a large collection, but a collection of uh, Gila monsters and beetle lizards that they were yep. doing uh cancer research with their venom yep. especially specifically uh lug cancer now yeah i was a zoo and wildlife major so i didn't do any of the you know cancer research part but i did help a lot with taking care of uh the gila monsters and bee lizards and yep. i mean not to brag but really am to brag uh i was like the only guy who he allowed to help him with that during my time there so that is certainly something to be proud of getting yeah. uh, trusted with those animals. Yeah. And uh, I have fallen in love with heel dermatis working with, yeah. working with those guys and I want to keep them, but I mean, they are actually legal in Ohio, which is kind of weird because Ohio bans a lot of stuff, but not those. Yeah. But I do want to get them down the road because they basically are just a, a scaly pug or pit bull of a lizard. They yeah. really are. How much do you know about the evolutionary history of helidromatids? Uh, I'm not, I'm not an academic on it, but yeah. Uh, and when we were down, when I was there, we did actually have uh, multiple locales of uh, beta lizards, and we did have the two. I think it's either like types or subspecies. I don't know what the yeah. exact status is of uh, uh, Gila monsters. You know, the reticulated and the banded, if I recall yeah. correctly. Yeah. And we had like us like i think like six or eight rio fuerte uh beetle lizards that we actually okay. got from the columbus that were on loan to him from the columbus zoo and aquariums and we had one that we suspected was actually a as a guatemalan we suspected okay. that and the, the guatemalan the yeah, those guys, they're rare right yeah i think it's like 200 in the wild or something like yeah. that yeah so, I, was, I was talking to a buddy yesterday actually about the guatemalan beetle lizards and how they're so rare but there's a group down there that's doing good work with them, apparently, uh, doing Gotta research. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's that's cool. Um, yeah, I'd probably get them on my podcast. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, truthfully, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about about that. But um, so you worked you worked um, with Dr. Carmichael um, at Bob Jones and then. At some point, you went to Gator Country. Was that the next reptile job you had? Uh, kind of. I went there. Well, not. It was kind of in between my two 
uh, two academic years at Bob Jones. Okay, I got you. You did a summer, so been, summer internship. Yeah, summer internship of 2018. Uh, worked there for about three and a half months. And yeah. I don't ever recall meeting you down there, which I don't know. I guess it, I guess it worked out because I'm talking to you now, but I feel like weird. I feel like I did meet you. I've, I've always used to pop in when when Gator Country would get a new bunch of interns. I would always pop in and network a little bit because I've met so many cool people through that program. Yeah, you I think know. you mentioned you met like one or two people that I was co-interning with. Okay, but, yeah, so maybe I missed you. But yeah. maybe uh, I don't know if you're like meeting them on uh, Gary's back porch or something like that. Could I didn't been. really. I didn't really go over there that often. I never felt like I was invited that over there too often. So I got you. Yeah. Um, but you want to talk yeah. about your experience, uh, your first real crocodile crocodilian experience at Gator Country? Well, technically, I did work with a, a little bit with a pair of baby alligators at the Serpentarium. Okay. So not, you had a I'm not going to say I'm not going to say it was a ton of experience, and you know, it's like, better than better than nothing going in. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But, better than, Going so like my, I'll tell you my experience working working there. I was a volunteer, and uh, um, I was a, like I said, junior in high school. Finally started volunteering there. Um, I think my second week there, I was diving in the pond with Big Al because <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, I did I did have experience. Um, you know, as I've mentioned, but when I went on your podcast, I had experience before I went, yeah. and uh, I was me and you know me and the owner clicked. Me and Gary clicked, and he, you know, he trusts me to work with some yeah. of the bigger, bigger crocs out there, bigger alligators out there. Um, although, when you bought, by the time you went, um, things were a lot stricter, I think. Um, yeah, and, I mean, they've gotten a lot stricter since I was there. So, uh, in 2014, 2015, that was towards the tail end of when it was still a little more laid back. Like they st- still at, still doing the alligator wrestling competition, which I won the amateur division. And they got second in the pro division the next year. But now the state stepped in and said they couldn't do it. Um, perhaps it's a good thing, but I, it was a lot of fun, I will admit. <laughs> it was a yeah. lot of fun. Um, yeah. I don't know. Did you hear any stories from the wrestling competition? Uh, about the only story I heard was one during a, that one famous video of the guy who was doing a roadshow who had a gator turn on him and grab his oh, arm. That was Will. That was Will. Yeah. yeah I, was, um, I was actually at Gator Country when that happened. And um, I was with Gary when he got the call, and that was oh, that was a stressful. That was during a wedding at Gator Country. It was Catfish oh. Killer's wedding. Oh boy! Yeah, that was. There were so many. Uh, Wait, was great... that the same what Was that the same wedding that uh, Big Al put a hole in Arlie's finger? That is the same wedding, and I had just got done doctoring Arlie up when that call <laughs> came in. So I was in the I was in the thick of it. <laughs> that was probably the great yeah. one of the craziest weekends they had there at that time it was it was a lot um definitely will getting flipped on his back by a nine foot alligator at the crawfish fest was way worse than what happened to arlie um will seemed to benefit from it though he got so much like media yeah attention he's he got like a huge instagram and um i'm gonna have to have will on to talk about that we still keep up a little bit he lives in the same town as me here in houston which is coincidentally where the crawfish festival incident happened was here in spring Um, (laughs) so that that's probably that incident there probably is uh why things are a little more strict around there 
Um, you know, even when it was laid back, you know, alligators are so much easier to handle than other species crocodilians. Oh, so it was oh for certain, yeah. It was never really an issue, you know, allowing interns to go and hand feed big, big alligators, and you know, allowing you know more experienced interns to go do road shows. Um, but you know, over time, accidents are, you know, you know, you know, bound to happen. Um, yeah. But it's still an immersive experience. Anybody listening, if you're interested in getting a hands-on experience with, with crocodilians, I think Gator Country um, should be your first stop because it's, you know, you can go there for about two months and, you know, you're going to get pretty good hands-on experience. Um, yeah. So that's, that's how I feel about it. But so you went there, you were there for a couple months. Three and a half months, basically, uh, sit. I'll say late May, early June of 2018 through mid-September. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. How'd you like Arlie? Oh, Arlie is He's a character. Man, dude. He's I'd be, a man. I'd be disappointed if you didn't have him on the podcast. Yeah. Something. Oh, well, I got to try. Um, yeah. Love Arlie. He's a, uh... yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. Maybe we can do it all, all three of us together. Me, you and Arlie. <laughs> be fun. Oh, I have a Arlie story. Uh, so I don't know if you knew the out one bigger alligators they recently got there back Big in 2018. Text. No, no, this is actually the year after this uh, different alligator that I actually helped got, catch. Okay, okay. I think Big Tex was like what one or two years before me. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, there's this big alligator they have down there now named Diesel. I don't know if you've Diesel. ever. I've, I've heard of Diesel, but I don't know if I've actually met him in the flesh yet. Need to. Yeah, he is a. Uh, He's a big mamma jamma to say the least. Yeah. But 12, 12 foot range, 13. He is 10 and a half foot, but like last foot and a half of his tail is missing. So, so he's still, yeah, he's a big boy. Yeah. yeah. He's, and he's got that really wide, what I like to call boat head, you know, some yeah. alligators have a bit of wider head shape. Yeah. yeah. But, anyways, uh, one weekend we're, Literally every other intern was out, like either on a road show where they had taken the weekend off. For some reason, I was the only intern there. We got a call on Sunday morning about a nine-foot alligator in someone someone's backyard. So we go over there, and we get, walk out, and we see just his uh, head and shoulders out from the rest of him was behind a bush. And just looking at him, I could tell that is a lot bigger than a nine-foot. <laughs> yeah. So uh, – you know, we do the whole catching thing, you know, where whole thing where Arlie tries to, you know, get his mouth shut and tape him up. Yeah. So me and uh, a guy who volunteered there, uh, named Andy, Andy Ayton, I believe is his last name. Okay. I don't know if you know who I'm talking I about. I, I don't know if I met him. Anyways, we had to jump him in order to pin him down for Arlie to be able to tape him, which yeah. that was a bit of an experience because we had to, you know, get his legs up behind his back and they started yeah twisting using his tail so i had to shoot me back strain his tail shoot me back up put his legs yep. back up yeah so we did get him all taped up and everything and he was like death rolling on the road which you know it's not never a good thing yeah hey anytime they're death rolling with concrete or asphalt nearby i get to get so cringy because it's you don't want them to beat themselves up yeah i mean he did get a, beat, a little bit beaten up he saw like you know yeah beat up on his skull and stuff like that a little bit of blood here and there not a big deal for him but yeah it just they, looks bad he can easily lift through that yeah. easily like a paper cut for us yeah so anyways then we had the big problem of getting him into the back of arlie's truck oh shit <laughs> yeah. he's gotta lift it he's gotta lift it he had the lifted f-150 at the time 
yeah yeah uh, no that's yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, so arlie was on the sh- the head and neck the other, other guy andy was like around the midsection i was on the base of the tail and they lifted the head and neck up got him on there and i had the base of the tail you know kind of down all of a sudden he started twisting and he kind of threw me and twisted me backwards and i saw it falling over backwards and as he was doing that he death rolled off the truck bed and fell right on top of me i was falling down on my back oh literally, shit literally bent me in half oh my God. <laughs> i just kind of rolled to the side you know rolled to the side rolled back around laid him flat on the ground and all of a sudden his head's just sitting right on my chest like this damn I was like, yeah i was like please don't death roll i'm on asphalt i can't handle it as well as you can <laughs> he's gonna weigh 400 pounds yeah, yeah. if more uh, it's always so, hard to gauge their weight yeah. but they're big at 10, 10 and a half, 11 feet long. They're a heavy animal usually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah tr- I trust me. My back was telling me he was a heavy animal. <laughs> so I always have managed, to, managed to get out from underneath him. I try to stand up and all of a sudden I just felt this far and away the worst back pain I've ever felt in my lower back. Yeah. I could not even stand up. I was, you know, uh, on my knees and elbows walk, trying to crawl off the road. Jesus. Where was this? Do you remember what town? Uh, it wasn't in a town. I can't remember where. It was maybe like 10 minutes from Gator Country. Yeah, tops. Yeah. yeah, I got you. But Dang. Anyways. Dude. Was that the biggest anyway, one? So I want so to do like a, here's the funny part oh. of the, the early part of the story. Okay, we got more up to the story. Yeah. It's just a little bit more. All right, yeah, yeah. So I just started stretching it. So I did like, I guess they call it Cobra Cetrino, wave down flat, just push mm-hmm. your arms and arch your back yeah that was really helping all of a sudden just here from the side of the road look at you doing yoga <laughs> <laughs> typical early remark there yeah i was like i was so wanted to just curse him out but i saw a little <laughs> lady in a night in a nightgown walk out with her smartphone recording i was like can't can't give him the cursing out he deserves right now for <laughs> the other guy held on trying to stop him from falling on me but arlie as soon as he started yeah. switching just let go and got away the, so. he, yeah when you when you work around big crocodilians long enough you learn when when they start thrashing and just get out tails a tail flying around or a tape even a head even when they're taped oh, up yeah. their head is really a fucking weapon too you know it's just yeah, like the tail um big old, you just get, you just get out of there because they're they're just they're just operating under different physics than us. They're so powerful. <laughs> they break yeah. our bones with oh, but <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe that doesn't uh, make sense about the physics, but you, you know what I mean. It's they're yeah. dramatically more powerful than we are. Yeah, yeah. I've heard plenty of uh, Gary Tong stories about how he's been beaten up over the years by alligators. So even taped alligators. Yeah, um, I've I've experienced a little bit of that as well. So I know I know now, but at the same time. Yeah. At the same time, my back was in pain. He was mocking me, so I was kind of <laughs> like, eh, "You know what?" <laughs> did, Ar- did, did Arlie ever? Uh, did you ever get Arlie a sandwich? You know the joke. Yes, yes, did I have gotten Arlie a sandwich. I've gotten him many sandwiches. At this yeah, point. for a while yeah. I didn't. I refused, but <laughs> uh, I finally gave in when he asked. When he asked you enough times, I wonder if he still does that joke. He used to ask literally everybody that walked in if they're going to get him a sandwich. Um, I was there. He was only do it when. Uh, do it when someone called and he managed to answer the phone first. Oh yeah. And then always finished with saying, I love you. And he always <laughs> said, and he always said, if they say I love you too, then you know I'm getting a sandwich. Yeah. 
So yeah. good it's character. Wouldn't be the same without Arley out there. He's the, the the part personality. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, uh went down to uh went back to Bob Jones. Yeah. And uh that was that was a semester before I left. Uh spring break was when we delivered that uh Asian water monitor buddy down to yeah. uh Ty Park's place down in uh, yeah. Naples, Florida. Gotcha. And we got a me and two other friends, one of you met, one of whom you met, Matt Minio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We had a pretty uh, wild uh, spring break down just hoboing yeah, down around South Florida. Yeah. Just living out the back of a uh, Bob Jones uh, passenger van because <laughs> the school loaned us a van in order to drive the lizard down there. Yeah. Jerry was, Jerry, was, Jerry, business, so. was y'all's gas paid for by the university too? Only on the way down, the way back up, all the oh, stuff. Just it was nice when you get your whole herb trip paid for. <laughs> yeah. But still yeah, pretty yeah. solid getting there and back. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, just uh, the only snake we ever found were eastern mud snakes. Yeah. We, there was like one we couldn't identify and just got away before we could catch it. Yeah. But we did catch uh, quite a few like uh, green iguanas. Yeah. A lot of green iguanas. Yeah. We saw a lot of uh, Eastern uh, African red red agamas, red yeah. agamas. You know, are those um, are those um, at like certain spots, or are they kind of widespread now? Uh, we only saw them at one spot, which was ironically right next to a ghetto. Okay, just, yeah. it was like just like a this random overpass over a canal that had like a lot of big concrete rocks, and they were just hanging around on those. Yeah, and we we're just we were just trying to get back there. We just pulled off, you know, it was like not in the ghetto that where we parked. It was like a little bit off from it. Yeah. And Matt goes to walk over a little rise to get around and go exploring. It's like, well, it looks like a bunch of brush and he wanders right into the middle of a homeless community. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was a bit interesting. But the thing was, we were driving out of a Walmart that was maybe like, I don't know, not even a quarter, half a mile away is like across the canal in a nice yeah. part we were just driving out the parking lot and i look over on the like the rocks right outside the exit to the parking lot i just see these lizards going around and i go like agamas it's go <laughs> like those are agamas mm-hmm. so a strange just, place it is down there yeah and let's see here you know of course like brown and olds and northern oh, yeah. lizards i think brown. matt still has the some of those northern curly tails we caught so I was looking on a uh, iNaturalist recently and brown and are expanding in, in Southeast Texas. They're already in Houston. And now there are records in Beaumont over by Finette by Gator country. I never recall seeing yeah. them out there before. So. I, I haven't seen them yet either, but um, there's a couple of records in the, t- like in the town of Beaumont. I don't know if you ever went into Beaumont when you were out there, but on occasion, it's a, you know, it's an urban center. So I'm not too surprised that they made their way there. Yeah. Uh, probably, you know, came from Houston somehow by, a car, car on, yeah. on someone's car, whatever. It's kind of yeah. But yeah, they've been all over Florida for a while now, and that they're just they're kind of like the invasive that you're like, oh, whatever. I want to go see an iguana or a, a gama or a basilisk. <laughs> well, we actually did catch a brown basilisk. <laughs> I caught the tail of one when I went. I grabbed the tail and it broke off. Yeah. Oh man. And then catch it, but I got the tail. But yeah, one of my other buddies who I was with, also named Andrew. Yeah. Uh, he was uh how we call it uh, iguanas was we would get in a kayak and we have a, a long like a 
see ocean grade fishing pole with uh paracord slip knot on the end. Oh, yeah, noosed them. Yeah, we just <laughs> had a long canal, a long bunch of brush, and we just reach up and sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, it was a lot of fun, but he was like paddling back after catching an iguana. He looks down, there's something a little lizard scurl along the side, and he thought it was like an iguana, so he just reached down and grabbed it. And he's like, Guys, this is like the skinniest, sickliest looking iguana I've ever caught. And we're like, that's not a basilisk. iguana, that's a basilisk. <laughs> yeah. But we saw so many basilisks down there just walking along canals, you know. Oh, yeah. We saw them like, you know, running. We didn't see them running out on water, but we saw them like run off into the cross ground on two feet, which was yeah. kind of a surreal moment for a herper yeah. like me. So for non-herpers. We're talking about all these invasive lizards that cause South Florida home that aren't native. Well, I guess yeah. some of them are technically not invasive. Uh, like invasive is a term that I think is misused a lot. Like there's non-native and then there's invasive. Invasive is when it is actually causing harm to the native plant or native ecosystem. But a lot of the species are, you know, mainly in urban areas. And I guess they're really not harming native species, right? I mean, I don't know what the impact of iguanas and basilisks are. Yeah. I mean, you know what's weird to me about iguanas? What? It seems like igu iguanas are a Caribbean species, right? They're native to the Caribbean, like around the Caribbean islands and stuff. Uh, green iguanas, I don't think so in no? particular. I think oh, they're more like uh, Yucatan. Oh, yeah. Mexico. It, just, it always seemed to me that maybe like green iguanas could have made it to South Florida naturally, you know. All right. I've had heard like once in. or twice people saying they might have some might have rafted over, but They're, but they generally think it's all human a result of humans moving them there. That, uh, as far as I could tell, that's the general yeah. census, but that's what I thought. There's records of them going going back all the way to like the 1940s and 50s yeah. down there. So that and that was really before you know it was kind of common to keep iguanas. So yeah. who knows? But uh, it almost seems like they could have somehow made it there, popping islands. You know, but hey, I don't know anything about iguana <laughs> ecology, so I'm not gonna act like know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, and then uh, one other lizard we heard, but we did not see. We were like spending a night on next to an overpass oh, along yeah, the key, and we just all of a sudden we we're just heard a call, and me and Matt processed it both for like half a second, then we both turned to each other and said, Toke, yeah, and we Johnny. started and we just started flashing lights along the over underside of the overpass and along the trees stuff like that and some guy who's like boat shack was nearby was like what are you guys doing <laughs> like we're looking for toke geckos really that's the story you're going with oh i love it when they say that yeah they don't believe you yeah yeah it's like this is so specific how like why would i if i was going to give you an excuse to hide the crime i'm doing why would i say that <laughs> yeah <laughs> One time I had our I had our snake in my hands and they still didn't believe me. <laughs> it's like you think I just carry around a rat snake to get away with whatever thing I'm doing bad on your property? Like, oh, stupid. Like, what do you think you're holding up the bank and <laughs> I'll come in and go like, no, you see, I was here to remove a rat snake. Yeah, like I was the perfect was, crime. I was out like in Texas. You know, ninety five percent of land is private, so. If you're a herper, you end up having to, you know, find loopholes in the trespassing laws, or you can just be really bold and hop fences. But I used to do that, but now I try to be a little more respectful. And I'll, I'll go onto an abandoned property if there's no fence, no purple paint, and no signage. If they're if they're lacking all three, 
they can't, you can't get a ticket at least. You're still, you might deal with an angry landowner, but you're not going to get in legal trouble. Yeah. So I was on a property like that and found a rat snake and landowner pulls up, pulls up. And as usual, they're like, they just automatically think we're poaching because they've had poachers. They've had a problem with poachers is what, is what we learned after talking to them. But they were really hot at first, really mad. Yeah. Um, it was a, uh, it was a couple, they were a young couple too. Which is really weird. Usually, when you deal with a landowner, it's like some old, old dude, you know. But yeah, so like I run out. I'm like, it's all good. They're yelling. I'm like, it's all good. You know, I'm just looking for snakes. I hold up the rat snake, and they they still didn't believe us that we were looking for snakes. <laughs> they thought we were. They're like, let's go find the guns. Where'd you hide them? I'm like, we don't have guns. We're, we're looking for snakes. <laughs> See, we got the hooks and everything. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, I get tired of dealing with landowners i wish texas had more public land yeah um, but, but yeah so you had some you had some good times in south florida yeah probably one of the best weeks week to 10 days of my life so yeah then you know after that uh for a month in the summer i was interning at crocodile encounter that's yeah. where i met you so yeah that's yeah i guess that's must must be where we officially met although i still feel like i probably saw you at gator country but uh, yeah, so you went to Crock Encounter. How long were you? You were there for a while. Like a month or two. Oh, Not, a, month. a month. A month, yeah. I got you. Yeah. Um, that's a, that was a, you're really like the first intern there. I think. Yeah. I never never really had like interns at Crock Encounter. Um, it's kind of structured different than other crocodilian parks that are like private parks like that. Um, you know, they there's you used to there weren't as many volunteers or interns but um it seems like they're kind of moving more in that direction which is great it's good to especially the volunteer stuff i think it's nice to get you know younger like high school kids coming out and you know learning about wildlife and yeah getting their, getting kind of getting their foot in the door you know with the zoological community yeah um and you know starting there with you know chris dieter it's you know it's a good solid foundation to have yeah. Um, so at Crocodile Encounter, um, you got to work with a lot of different species. That's that's one of the yeah. cool things about going there. Yeah. What was a favorite, your favorite species that you got to work with? <sighs> that's like asking me to pick my favorite sibling. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right. I have one, but I'm not supposed to say it. I know mine is the Chinese yeah. alligators. Yeah, Chinese alligators are up there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but American alligators are kind of knock down a peg just because i've already worked them a lot and they're so yeah common. yeah ah uh, man cuban probably crocs. A, i love the cubans they're cool how i say the most imp- the species i was most impressed by was the uh orinocos i knew you were about to say orinocos and i know i'm kind of basic but they're they're yeah you're not basic at all those are like some of the most badass crocs on the planet uh, i always wanted to work with orinocos they're they're kind of a species that interested me i didn't really know a lot about them yeah so like the first day i got out there and i saw uh jade you know feeding doing a feeding tour with them and yeah. i saw how they were moving how fast they were how aggressive and i was like oh yeah these things are a lot different than an alligator this is a lot more of a species yeah. you have to be careful with you can't be all uh loosey-goosey with these guys yeah they're they're a different animal um and now we have so many you can't really like get in there and really work with one 
they all kind of come up at once and it's kind of dangerous. So we feed from platforms. Um, but used to, it was like, uh, it was like in one enclosure, we had Coco and Loco together and you could go in there and, and it was very laid back to work with them one-on-one kind of miss those days. Now we have, you know, bigger groups together and, um, it's a little bit tougher, but they're still, you know, even feeding them from a platform is still pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, and it's also nice to be on the platform because you don't have to worry about getting your arm ripped off. Don't have to worry about one sneaking up behind or anything like that. Right. Um, we'll actually be moving those in in two weeks, I think. We'll be moving them inside. Yeah, and uh, I hear that Alvaro is going to be going to Gatorland. So, Oh, really? I, yeah, I didn't know that. That's what that's why I heard. So that's I'd be not, really sad. I'm really sad to see him go. I'm I'm not a fan of that news. But they are getting like a but they are getting a 13 foot to Mistima from the LA zoo. So also didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I mean you're losing Alvaro, but you're getting a 13 foot to Mistima. So hard. Dang. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I was there like last week or two weekends ago. I never and nobody told me this this news i'm excited I about just heard, i just heard it so like oh, you just heard a week it week or two ago nice. so like, you're more in the loop than i am and i freaking look here <laughs> although i mean i don't work I, I was, anymore but i was just texting specifically to ask if anything was new so oh, i got you yeah i don't but, i don't bug chris as much anymore he, he'll just hit me up when he's got some work for me and i'm always yeah. happy to go down and work that's the coolest thing man i, I uh one thing um i really I'll, I'll, I'm, i encourage people to do is you know wherever you work maintain those relationships because like it's so cool for me to get to go back to crocodile encounter and, and do shows there and stay in the loop with all the all the croc stuff uh, even gator country you know i still like going back to gator country um if anything just to hang out i haven't done much there as far as work in a while but i still like having as many connections as possible like you, you never want to burn your bridges when you make connections in the yeah. wildlife field yeah. um so yeah, that's uh that's a good good lesson I've learned is you know always maintaining your your friendships in the wildlife world. So I yeah. especially croc. I love going to Croc Encounter and working still. Oh, one of my favorite places on the planet. It's far it's away. Fun. So I, um, I mean I try to make it down there at least once a year, yeah. and kind of accidentally got uh, conscripted into doing a couple of transportation runs. Oh down yeah, there. yeah. So which I'm yeah you're always happy to do. Yeah, so that actually how I met Rob Carmichael was uh, doing that. Okay, so that's when you first met. Was that when you got to move the salty down? Yeah, Max. Yeah, Max. That was a. Yeah. First posted was a, a picture. He posted a picture of Max today. He looked really nice. Yeah, I just saw it. Yeah. You know, like a lot of really dark, almost black coloring. I saw mm-hmm. on him, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy. I really like that. So. Yeah, pretty sure Matt, uh, Max was part of uh, Mark Merchant's um, color change study. Hmm. So I remember Mark, maybe not. I know Mark went up to Rob's place. He may have been up there for the alligator snapper. He did a, a bite study. I don't know if he's published that stuff yet. Um, Mark's always doing all kinds of random shit. You got to get him on your podcast. He can yeah. talk about anything croc or reptile related. Um, now he's doing snake stuff and turtle stuff. And, but yeah. at one point he was doing that. Did you ever look into that color change study he did? I have actually. I, I remember uh, reading reading up on that a little bit. Yeah. So. He like he went around the U.S. and and got every species of crocodilian and did that, seeing how their their 
color changes under different light conditions and you know background it, coloration all that stuff yeah and it's it's kind of a neat neat thing to you know think about with crocodilians and um if you, you notice it, it, it you notice it when you work with them you know on cl yeah. cloudy days they they get real dark you know so perhaps to absorb more light but yeah. he thinks he seems to think i actually haven't i think i read the abstract but i can't remember much i don't i never really dug through that paper but uh i think when i was talking to mark about it because i helped him he came to crocodile encounter for a couple of species and I helped him catch up catch up some of our crocs i think he came for the west african the uh sucus the crocodile sucus um he needed that species and he seems to think that it's more about when they're when the crocodilians are babies they're so small and they're very susceptible to predators um maybe when they're swimming along the surface of the water you know a darker darker belly coloration at night um can you know kind of work as like a, a sort of camouflage they keep a fish yeah. coming up and grabbing it yeah that, he, he was you know thinking thinking along those lines last when i was talking to him back then i don't know what he thinks now um there's yeah, it's really fascinating though. Um, but yeah, you need to get him on your podcast. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, he's a big, big name in the croc world. Everybody knows Mark. And he's yeah. he's right. He's from like right down the road from Finette. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Beaumont area. So, yeah. So after I worked at did that internship at Crocodile Encounter for about. A year and a half, I worked at a pharmaceutical safety assessment laboratory. Okay, yeah. Uh, Charles River, which that was only one of like, I think 60 laboratories they have in total across the world. And one just happened to be with like 30 minutes from where I lived. Nice. So I worked there for, uh, like I said, a year and a half. Yeah. Not my type of work. I'll just be <laughs> upfront, brutally honest about it. Yeah. What exactly were you doing? Uh, basically drug safety assessment testing. So... Okay. All the, you know, all the testing before the FDA would yep. approve a drug for, you know. Yep. So, yeah, I saw a lot of uh, messed up stuff while I was there because I, I, I don't want to go into it. Because, you got to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I did meet a couple of uh, reptile people there. Oh, who, nice. Uh, yeah, one of my uh, best, probably my best friend in the reptile community named uh, Micah Mold. He just... He might be an interesting guy to have on your podcast. Yeah. I've, I don't, and I'm really tempted to put him, ask him on mine. Yeah. But he and his brother run a reptile breeding business called Serpents and Salamanders. Okay. Uh, he breeds the serpents. His brother breeds the salamanders. Nice. A lot of uh, like aquatic newts and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So, and they got, and they have a mutual friend there who is like a really higher up there. Was, he's like the supervisor of multiple regional laboratories. Yeah. Guy by the name of Andy Vick. And I got to know Andy a fair bit over the that time. And I've actually got that's he's a guy I got my Dominican red mountain boa pair from. So nice. those are my, those are pretty sought after, pretty rare. Yeah, I got them at a decent price, but they were actually originally bred by Paul Bodnar. Okay. So Paul filmed him and he kind of just had to make room in his collection. So that's how I got wound up with them. And I love crocodilians, but man, those snakes are perfect attitude perfect looks yeah well arguably one of the most beautiful animals on the planet so yes. but cool, man. back to where i was growing up from you know back up here in ohio for a while i had almost lost my interest in doing biology when i was a 
in like junior high and high school, freshman yeah. year of high school. Uh, I was actually, uh, for the most part, homeschooled growing up. Yeah. So my freshman year of high school, I did a homeschool biology course. And yeah. it almost that almost killed my interest in biology. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Was it, it mainly was, cell? Was it like the molecular cell based type biology? Uh, it was just a gen bio, but oh, yeah. it was just, it was just a, such a bad curriculum and all that stuff that oh, I got you. Yeah. poorly, at, well, I don't know about the curriculum being bad, but the way it was taught was not well. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, uh, my grandfather had finally convinced me to go back to playing football. So I had to open roll at classes at the local high school. Yeah. And so I took a bio, uh, bio two class there, which is host was taught by a guy who will be a really good guest for your show. Uh, a man by the name of David Sprang, who is a put him in my notes. What's his name? David Sprang, S P R E N G. Okay. David yeah. Sprang. Nice. Yeah, it's kind of he's, uh, he gave his, his approach was much better teaching biology. Yeah. yeah. But also, uh, I really liked him because since it was not a required biology, biology class is not a required credit or anything like that. He mostly taught whatever he wanted to, which was a lot of uh, local natural stuff. He was oh, that's very much awesome. in that. Uh, he's very much in that sort of uh, old school local natural history. Vein. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I, yeah, I'm, I, I definitely have more interest in that side of biology than you know this new po- like molecular biology fad. It, it's become yeah. too oppressive and. Yeah. school it seems like but it gets all the it gets all the funding and so all the you know all the students think that's like the way to go yeah, yeah but i like the old, i like old school natural history towards that yeah so uh so like i said he taught mostly what he wanted to teach so he taught like a yeah. basic anatomy class which is basically just a big dissection yeah uh then let's see another course he taught was mammal skull identification oh wow that's that's tough I yeah. really struggled with mammal skulls. So that's that. that. Yeah. So he had like, he has this whole huge collection of mammal skulls and he, he awesome. taught us all how to identify all these different skulls. And I've gotten really rusty at it because, yeah. well, let's just face it. I don't have a lot to practice on. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not, I mean, I don't have a several thousand dollar skull collection in my basement to right. possibly brush up on or anything, but I would like to have my own skull collection though. Yeah. Oh, that'd be I just, pretty sick. I gotta learn how to but, prep skulls takes a little bit of work, but it's worth yeah. it. Yeah, but uh, I still know how to tell the difference between a red fox and a gray fox skull. So yeah, is yeah. it like is there a particular trait you look at, or is it just by gestalt? Uh, the most dead. There's a few smaller characteristics. One of the most dead giveaway that's so obvious to tell is I. Uh, you look at the pair of uh, crests that run down the skull that yeah. kind of <clears throat> meet down the base of the skull. Yeah. Those aren't the sagittal crest. I can't remember where they are. No, but yeah. in a gray fox, it forms like a, a U shape, whereas in a red fox, it forms a V shape. Gotcha. Pretty, and, pretty distinct. Yeah. And it's actually uh, pretty easy to remember because <laughs> I know it sounds childish, but remember the U because red fox is a uh, Eurocyon and V because uh, gray fox, U is gray fox is Eurocyon, uh, V for the red fox, Volpe's. Nice. So. Nice. <laughs> A little bit there. That's cool. So that that high school biology teacher is what inspired you to go ahead and, and study biology in college. Yeah. Yeah. And that's cool. 
so that I'm actually going from the, it was like a one semester, like two block, two period class. Yeah. So like two periods a day for semesters while you taught. Yeah. And so that was the second semester. So, in the, you know, cold month, you know, dead winter, he would teach you that pig dissection and then uh, yeah. the mammal skull identification. But then we got to the thaw, you know, spring thaw, and that's where we get to the herping. Salamanders. Yeah, I taught a vernal pool ecology. So. That's awesome. Dude, that is so freaking cool. I wish I had a high school teacher that taught something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so we learned. That's neat. So, like, we learned all about, you know, like, uh, fairy, uh, fairy shrimp. Uh, yeah. Uh, life cycles and all that sort of yeah. stuff but the best part was since it was you know a two-period class we were actually able to go out to all the, the two local state parks and yeah. a few private properties that he had permission on we would go yeah. set uh minnow traps and we'd like pull up salamanders in the spring and stuff like that Dude, that's so cool yeah so i remember uh one particular uh vernal pool which for people listening a vernal pool is basically a little dip in a wetland uh forest that during like the spring, the snow melt and spring rains, a lot of water will collect in that. Yeah. And that's where, you know, all the salamanders go to breed. Fairy shrimp, dormant fairy shrimp eggs will hatch out and those and all that stuff. Yeah. Plus one pool in uh, Malabar Farm State Park. It's probably like 10 foot wide by 20 foot long. Maybe as deep as four foot deep. We had like a, a few minnow traps in there. And we pull them out one morning and we pull out like 90 Jefferson salamanders out of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. All, all, uh, were they, I mean, they weren't adults, were they? They were all adults. They were all adults. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cause usually, uh, Jefferson salamanders, they're an embistimate salamander, embistima Jeffersonianum. Yeah. So they usually live out on land, you know, in yeah. underneath logs and in bur- mammal burrows and stuff like that. But, but they're breeding. Yeah. That's the breeding yeah, season. That's yeah, why we set the traps at that specific time. So they're, you know, all piling into that pool to, yeah. you know, get it on. That's awesome. Yeah. And then later in the year, we would, uh, the final course you would have in class was actually a birding class, which was the first. Dude, like, what the heck? <laughs> which was what got me into birding. So yeah, Dude, I've, kind so of been cool. on the, I've kind of been on the dark side for a while now. Were there other students that became naturalists because of that teacher in your class? A few that uh, not that particular class that I recall off the top of my head, but a few other people he has taught throughout the years to become naturalists. Yeah. Like yeah. one is like really high up in the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. Another guy who I played football wow. with who's a few years ahead of me is now like a in charge of the, well, I don't know about in charge, but he's now like a zookeeper at uh, the Toledo Zoo. Wow. And so forth. That's uh man, there's so much value in having high school teachers that are for one passionate about teaching and, to um you know getting kids out in nature yeah a lot of especially you know you know depending on where you're at um you know you can imagine um you know like inner you know city type areas inner city if you have these kids that never get any exposure to nature um you know they they're never going to be inspired to want to you know care about it but if you have a teacher come along and you know taking kids out to go birding man that's got that's like so valuable that needs yeah. to be that need, there needs to be more of a push for for that sort of thing yeah yeah that's that's cool yeah so he was kind of the guy that got me on to uh ambistimus alamanders which yeah out of all ohio native herps might be my favorite which yeah I mean, some... i'm a crocodilian guy i i my favorite snakes are probably uh the 
Australasian pythons. Yeah. I love monitor lizards, but yeah. All native herps, salamanders. salamanders. Yeah. And salamanders. Because got, how many species do y'all have of, of Ambistema? Let's see here. We have uh, Jefferson's blue sided, which is Ambistema laterale. Okay. Uh, which those guys are more like extreme northeast corner of Ohio. Okay. They range they, more they, they like Michigan. Live more like range up into like Michigan and, okay. and uh, Wisconsin, and then across into Canada along the northern side of the Great Lakes. Okay. Then uh, we have a smallmouth salamander, okay. which would be uh, Ambistema texanum, I believe. That's a species we share. We uh, yeah. Texanum makes it all the way to southeast Texas. Yeah. Uh, we have tiger salamander, you know, tigrinum. Yep. Uh, we have uh, opacum, the marble yes. salamander, which we I think opacum. is another share. We, have, we also have the tigrinum. Yeah, so yeah, like three shared species between the two of yeah. us. Probably got maculatum up yeah. there. Oh, right? Yeah, that was about talpoidium. Talpoidium. Mole salamander. Ambistema talpoidium. I can't I don't recall ever hearing about that one actually. Oh, being gotcha. They're kind of funky looking. They don't they don't have any um like distinct pattern, kind of like a just a grayish color, real funky face. Well, my experience said uh, Jeffersons tend to have like a kind of a silvery grayish color. So yeah. That's really, really quite a bit different than the Jeffersons, I think, but I, I don't know. But so you'll have you'll have a fair number of Ambistema salamanders. Yeah, and that's not counting the uh, unisex complexes we have here. Yeah, you can you can describe that. Um, we talked about it before a little bit, but um, and I've I've learned a little bit about it, but it's a very unique uh, sort of thing. So you can you can talk about that if you want. Yeah. So these we have uh, two main lineages that I can. And I'm, I'm basing this off of data I learned in high school, which yeah, yeah. I've learned has, you know, been kind of updated quite a bit over recent yeah. years. So I'm kind of a little Taxon- flogging out of date taxonomic, on it. Taxonomic yeah. confusion revision. Yeah. So uh, the two main lineages actually used to be counted as their own separate species, though I don't think they go by that anymore. Okay. Uh, there'd be Embistema, uh Trembly. Trembly eye, which was uh, referred to as Trembly salamanders. Okay. And uh, I to remember Ambistema platineum or the silvery salamander. Okay. So those, so you know, most uh, sexual animals are uh, diploid uh, yep. chromosome count. Yep. Uh, these these unisex complexes are actually triploid. They have a, a three n three yep. chromosome count. Yep. So. Well, these, uh, I believe the primary primary lineage of those guys are is primarily a hybrid of uh, the blue-sided and the Jeffersons, which okay. blue-sided and Jeffersons are already very similar looking as is. They're both kind of a base gunmetal gray, silvery color with some blue splotching on the side. It's, the blue gotcha. splotching on the side is a lot more noticeable than the blue-sided. You know, gotcha. funny enough. But those two species, uh, Jefferson's and blue sided, they don't really overlap at the moment, but back during the last glaciation period during the, uh, Wisconsin glacier, uh, that actually forced the, uh, blue sided salamanders populate, uh, range down to intermingle with the Jefferson's. So that's where the okay. primary hybridization occurred. Okay. I gotcha. But those complexes, they've done some genetic research and they've shown like some Texanum, some Tigrinum. And uh, so uh, a bit of those two species have intermingled in there somewhere as well. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So 
they're just these weird uh frankenstein salamanders that <laughs> oh largely because of the that wisconsin glacier that's period. probably a large part of that what forced yeah. them together pushing them down yeah yeah then uh so these guys they actually reproduce via cloning but for some reason they need the male sperm to trigger the cloning process so they'll actually go out and seduce males of other species to give them uh, the give them wow <laughs> in order to uh trigger the cloning process and they usually go for uh either one of their parent species so where there's Jeffersonianum, they'll go for Jeffersonianum. Where there's uh, Laterale, they go for Laterale. But I just, I was just brushing up on this the, the past few days. And I think I've actually, from what I've heard, they actually uh, will sometimes have a few fertilized with that uh, fa- father's DNA a little okay. bit yeah. in order to get a little bit of extra variety in their d- genome a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Like the majority are just pure clones of the mother. That's really fascinating. Um, if I ever go to Ohio, I got to see some of these salamanders. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it depends. Can what you, you tell when you when you look at like phenotypically what what are they? What do they look like? Uh, it's been a while. I've never I've never seen one that I was able to concretely identify as difference. Okay, I had one that we thought might be one, but it was really weird because it was clearly a male. So. Yeah. It's like a one in 14 million is a male and those are sterile. So I'm not going to say I found a one in 14 million yes. salamander. <laughs> yeah. I'm not That's that cool. divinely blessed or anything like that. <laughs> That's neat. But uh, um, I believe they usually tend to have where I live at, they usually tend to have a little bit more <laughs> blue coloration on their sides than the yeah. uh, Jeffersons do. Yeah. And they look a lot more like a, they look basically like a Jeff, more or less like a Jefferson's. So, yeah. That's neat. Um, what about plethodon? What about lung, uh, the plethodon genus in Ohio? You got decent diversity. Yeah, that's the lungless, right? The lungless salamander, yeah. Yeah, I've seen quite a few of those, you know, growing yeah. up just like they're in, very in the yard or in the woods or anything like that. What I've come to understand about plethodon and why they're cool is because, like, across the across, uh, you know, the eastern U.S. especially, you get so many species that. Uh, they're like down on one mountain range or a yeah. lot of cool endemics um all throughout the kind of the eastern u.s um we have one in texas it kind of it kind of um is stuck here from the the last glaciation period oh. like a pleistocene relic it's found in it's the western slimy and the closest um the closest uh population to, to, to the texas population is like hundreds of miles away in Oklahoma hmm. is the closest you can find Western slimies, but you get them in central Texas in these shaded canyons. So as the Texas landscape became more arid, um, just got stuck there. They just, they just persisted in these moist shaded canyons that don't get as much sunlight. Um, there's this some whole, like, uh, refugia. Yeah. Yeah. Pleistocene refugia. Um, so that's, that's pretty neat. Um, I wish we had more species at South. Texas has a lot of cool biodiversity, but we're kind of lacking in salamander diversity. Aside from the Eurasia, we have all these endemic Eurasia found in um, that are associated with karst type environments, um, like spring, uh, like the springs in the hill country and um, caves and that sort of thing. But as far as ambistomatids and plethodont, uh, you know, other like plethodon 
the genus Plethodon, we don't have very many species. Um, yeah. Got to go further east to really get get the cool stuff. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, back to that uh, Bio Two course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually kind of got the uh, short end of it because he was when I was teaching there, when I was a student there, he was kind of toward, uh, that Mr. Spring, he was kind of towards the end of his career. Yeah. We had actually shortened that class. It used yeah. to be a two semester class, but now it's just a one semester. So we actually cut a few things that oh, okay. were traditionally bio two things that he had taught for literally decades. Like he would do an entire like freshwater ecology where they would go out and like electroshock the local river to cat, find all the fish and stuff <laughs> like that. It's like a straight up wildlife biology class in college. <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah so and, and he used to teach like tree identification as well which dang, see if i ever he wanted to he would try to but he just couldn't find the time in between all the other courses so though he did I like, like uh, point out different stuff here and there try and get like a when we were like out birding or looking yeah. for salamander to be like okay like look at that one that's clearly a sycamore or something like that yeah man if i if i like I like my job right now, but you know, some sometime in my career, if I ever had a, an opportunity to teach, I would do it if I could teach a class like that, like yeah. natural history stuff. Yeah, you know, just going out doing like plan ID and and you know surveying ephemeral ponds for salamanders. It's freaking. That's that's yeah. fun. Um, and at Bob Jones, did you get to take some some cool ecology classes? Uh, when I. I was scheduled to take an ecology class with Dr. Carmichael of all people, but I just had to leave before I was able to take it, which has always kind of peed me off a little bit. I got you. But I wish they had been more bio biology focused with the courses there, but since it's Bible Jones University, I had a mandatory at least one Bible class this per semester. I got you. So, I got you. so you can't squeeze I, as much. I enjoy those well enough because they're usually an yeah. easy grade, but yeah. But you just didn't get as many of the, the biology. That was more like late, like what, like junior, senior year stuff you. where you get more into that. But I never really got that opportunity. I got you. <clears throat> um, so where are you at now in your career, and what do you, what are your aspirations going forward aside from uh, creating the best croc podcast out there? <laughs> I'm flattered that you think it's the best one out there. <laughs> Man, you've had you've had some of the biggest names already. I think you're on the right track. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm flattered, but yeah, yeah, that uh, laboratory job I actually left back in like late March, early April, if I recall correctly. Okay. And I actually went back to my family's printing business. Yeah. Uh, Trex Spring and Laval. We quality impression since 1966 for all your printing needs. Please just hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh but yeah it's just went back to the family business which is something i've you know always worked at like over the yes. summer or yeah. you know, in spare time during the school year stuff like that yeah but now i got hired in to be like an assistant press operator so learning how to cool, operate man. a printing press and stuff like that but and mostly in uh in terms of like wildlife and stuff like that i've been applying to go to a local university to get a bioeducation degree okay so we'll see how We'll see how that whole transfer process goes. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But also uh, been reaching out to doing some uh, like breeding projects with my uh, collection. Oh, nice. So, nice. Yeah. 
serving. Did, at some point, you aspire to have possibly have your own facility someday. That's like, my main aspiration. Like, that's my main goal down the line. That's still yeah. still something you're hoping to do. Yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. In Ohio, are there any such places? Uh, I mean, other than like Columbus Zoo and or like Cleveland Zoo or something yeah. like that. Nothing. Not really. I can't. I've looked around a little bit, but I haven't really found anything. Yeah. I mean, I know of some like private keepers here and there, yeah. but other than but that, nothing. It sounds like Ohio needs an, a proper croc park. Yeah, that's kind of my main goal. Serpentarium. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, not, like I ACA mean, is 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 valuable and stuff, but I, I really appreciate these uh, smaller facilities that yeah kind of operate under different. You know, they're just yeah. like Crocodile Encounter is not ACA, but I mean they still are good with AZA and they're like affiliated, it's like, but it's like a uh, weird gray area almost. It's, it is. Yeah. It certainly could be AZA and they still get to be involved with those AZA programs like the SSB stuff, but it's, yeah. it's an added an advantage to not be, you know, under, under that AZA title because it's very restrictive, <laughs> very thick rule book. Yeah, um, which, you know, it's probably for the best, but, you know, it's nice to have smaller yeah. facilities that can, you know, to kind of do their own thing, but. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, so part of me wants to go back and finish my degree, but the other part of me kind of wants to just keep working to save up some cash and just buy a few acres of land and start up. Start that facility. Because in terms of, like, snakes, I already probably have a decent startup for, like, display animals, so. Yeah, yeah. what all do you recently, have? I actually recently, I've always kind of had this itch, but recently I've finally been able to scratch it. I wanted to get a uh, scrub pythons. So okay, yeah, like my Australian stuff. So yeah, Australian yeah. pythons. So I got got a subadult pair of Maruki scrub pythons, nice. got a juvenile male Maruki scrub, and I got a little female Wamena scrub python. Then I got you know Brettles carpet, uh, Irian Jaya nice. carpet. A children's python which is you know, yeah i know like shelby oh, and jade love theirs but mine yeah. is an absolute little pissant so <laughs> yeah you'll just start blind striking anything as soon as i start touching his enclosure yeah yeah those are then, the small pythons in australia are, are interesting to me i mean i love him to death but yeah. i kind of love him just because he is such a mean little bastard yeah but uh then, like I mentioned, uh, I have my Dominican red mountain boas. Yeah. I have a, you know, Argentine black and white tegu. Yeah. What, you it's know, kind of fancy. A solid standard fare, big lizard. So, speak. yeah, it's a good one to have. I don't know if yours is, is laid back enough, but, you know, if you ever get to where people are coming in, they're a, a nice lizard to let people touch, usually. Yeah. I don't know if I let him be touched because he's kind of about him. He's actually a Florida feral as well. Oh, he's Florida feral too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go to South of Florida for all your exotic reptile needs. Just yeah. run out into the bush and catch all yeah. your tegus and pythons. <laughs> but no, there's a guy down there who like I don't know about with Florida's recent laws being passed, but he used to like go out and just catch them, yeah. calm them down, get them accustomed to, to handling and stuff like that, and then sell them. Which I mean, if it's already invasive, you may as well make a point, make something off of it. Right. I yes. Guess. Yeah, I mean, he's taking them out of the environment, and he's filling a need, fulfilling just, a d- domestic need. So they don't want them to be sold to other South Floridians, where they could then be released back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like 
It's like, okay, I got you from human slavery. Now be free, my pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Back to eating rare and endangered bir- ground nesting birds. Yeah. Their eggs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he, so like uh, Carmichael got that one with another one who were like, uh, I can't remember the word, but they were like habituated together. Okay. So they're like yeah. kind of like used to each other. They're, they were both males, but they were, yeah. since yeah. they were habituated to each other. But yeah. after I left the Serpentarium, another guy there had decided to separate them for some reason. Didn't tell Carmichael about it. Separated them for like a three or four weeks, then put them back together. And all of a sudden, they just started going uh, at each other's throats all the time. Oh, so wow. they had to get rid of him. So then he went to Matt Minio. And then Matt was like about to move to Florida with all their laws. And he's like, ah, I no. can't take him. So, can't hey, Nate, him. Have, have him. Nice. So he's had a bit of a rough, you know, circle of passed around <laughs> yeah so he's he's a uh, you know he's been through some stuff so i'm working with him to get him calm down and yeah i can go in there and not have to worry about him like running me down or anything like that i can you know pat him a little bit and, and he especially loves being fed like you know i guess i guess animals do take after their owners in that regard but yeah that's but cool. for the most part I, I can't really stay in there too long you know can't really put too much attention yeah uh, love on him because then he starts you know getting all huffed up and everything so yeah speaking of tegus how did you like casanova casanova black and white tegu at crog encounter i never really worked with the tegus at never worked on? Yeah. i love that dude he's uh he's like the main he's he's always been a part of the main show you know like the stage show yeah um and that lizard has literally licked or kissed probably at this point thousands of of teachers like and it's so fun to joke about that but it's also like a fact he's literally kissed like thousands of women because <laughs> we, we, we you know we pull him up we pull him out and then we bring up a teacher you know and yeah. get him to lick like you know they have that big big yeah. tongue and uh get, get him to lick lick the teacher on the cheek kids will love it yeah it's uh real he'd be a real covid super spreader right <laughs> yeah he's getting he's getting kind of mean lately though when i, I was out there um yeah a couple of weeks ago and um you know pulled him out for a show and i was kind of nervous like holding him up to the lady's face because he was kind of opening his mouth and uh, i mean take they have a gnarly bite so you gotta be oh, careful but yeah i want to start doing that old gape threat off. <laughs> yeah but yeah, he, he's he's pretty cool for the most part. Um, but he, maybe he's just getting old. He's kind of grumpy. Maybe we need to retire him soon. Yeah, he's uh, he's, he's like I got this arthritis. Can't be falling <laughs> out here all the time. Yeah, he's had a good run. If he does yeah. retire soon, he's been at it. I think he's been working at Crock Encounter longer than than I have. <laughs> yeah. Although I mean I don't cool. work there really anymore, but he's been there a long time. He's he's been there since I've been there for sure. An old hand. Yeah, we used to use a big, a big black throated monitor for for the shows, but I wish, I wish they saw the black throats when I was there. He's, yeah, he's moving away from keeping the monitors. Kind of bummed about. It's kind of surprising too. Chris is like, that's like a fundamental part of who he is is monitors. You know, people think of him as a croc guy, but you know, like I was going through one of his old uh, boxes with a bunch of magazines, and he's got like all these articles that he's published in these magazines about his experience breeding monitors you know pretty yeah. good um 
but yeah, yeah, but, yeah Crocs are kind of taking over, taking yeah. over everything out there. Uh, I guess he's just too good at breeding them. He's running out of space. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but I'm having, you know, when I was down there, it's actually the first time I really got to go herping like seriously herping was with you. Yeah. So you've actually been kind of an inspiration to me to get, you know, more into uh, my, knowing my local wildlife because yeah, man, that's good. beforehand I was kind of like more exotic focused, Yeah. but I've come to realize there's a lot, like a lot of really cool herbs around Ohio that I never really lo- even looked at yep. before. Like, uh, if that Mr. Frank guy told me about a place up by uh, Sandusky, the, it's actually the old entrance to the Cedar Point theme park. Okay. Yeah. Got reclaimed by this. Uh, got banned, so the state took it and actually made re- returned it back to be a coastal forest, uh, okay. yeah. lakeside forest, wetland. Yeah. And he says if you go up there in May, you're almost dead set certain to get a to find eastern fox snakes and uh, Lake Erie water snakes. Oh wow! So, yeah, fox and, snakes are neat. I've, I've always wanted to see a fox snake. I've never been in the range. Like I said, you got to come up to Ohio sometime. Yeah, man. I need to. But then, uh, and like Lake Erie water snakes is one thing I've always wanted to see. But whenever I'm up around there, I just never seem to find them for some reason. Yeah. Like I could find northern water snakes all the time. They're like the one species of snake I could find consistently around here. Yeah. When I go up to Lake Erie, they're just not that I just can't find them. And everyone's going like, oh, yeah, they're like on oh, boat docks everywhere. And it's like, yeah. yeah, you see pictures where they're like piled up on each other, you know, dozens yeah. of them. And I've actually found out that they actually play a really significant ecological role in the lake as well. Oh, wow. That's neat. Because they've actually, uh, uh, there's one species of like goby fish that got introduced from the Black Sea and uh, Caspian Sea. Okay. That primarily feeds on like uh, uh, fish eggs in the fry as actually had really depleted the local fish populations. Yeah. But since the Lake Erie water snake, which is a subspecies of the northern water snake, got put on protection and its numbers have bounced back if they find that like up to 90 percent, 95 percent of their diet is that goby oh wow so those actually put a really big hit on that goby's population so all the other local fish fishery populations have actually really bounced back with yeah. that snake population bouncing back that's really that's really interesting yeah but lake erie is ecologically is a mess we got like invasive lampreys and zebra mussels and all that <laughs> stuff and then yeah. we have like toxic algae blooms from a fertilizer runoff and all that wow yeah so i think that, i don't i don't think, I think much of a few the years ago yeah that's a few years ago so i think and for a large part of the lake lakes in general have been <laughs> waterways have been cleaning up a lot so things are kind of turning around in that regard are those is lake erie like like way out in the middle of it is it is there a lot of fish like all throughout it or is it a deep out in the middle and rather lifeless or do you know much about the aquatic system aspect of it? I don't know too much about the aquatic system, but I do know it's actually the shallowest of all the great lakes. Yeah. I think it's like a steepest point. It's like 40 some odd feet. Okay. So it's a, you know, it's a really shallow lake, which also means it's really nasty when the storm hits as well. Yeah. So oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, but I've seen plenty of people that I know like go out right into the middle of the lake and catch plenty of fish. Like, yeah, uh, they're catching like walleye and stuff. Walleye, right. steelhead, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, nice. But, nice. There's, yeah, I'd like to go fishing up there. Do you do any fishing? A little bit here and there. I'm never really any good at it, so yeah. when I do a, do it just for fun to hang out with people. Yeah, and also well, to eventually get ticked off about losing tackle in the trees and not oh, catching. Oh yeah. Time, so. Well. 
um, if you like herps, if you ever get into fish diversity, uh, you'll find yourself fishing more. Yeah. There's a lot of I cool always wanted to catch fish. like a north a northern pike since those are yeah. around here. Like those are a cool fish. Yeah. Real pretty. They get pretty big too, right? I think like top sense is like five foot or something like that. So yeah, that's it's a large, pretty large freshwater predatory fish. Yeah. Um I don't know if you listened to my first episode with with on. Um he he knows a lot about fish fish diversity and he's really inspired me to want to go out and fish like people actually catch darters on hook and line like little little <laughs> darters and it's like a, there's a whole like it's like the field herping community but it's for fish you know yeah. it's kind of cool um and yeah. i follow a couple people on instagram that photograph darters in situ like they have underwater housings for huh. their cameras and these are some of the most beautiful animals you'll see in north america like these little darters bright yeah. blue and orange coloration and really just amazing i would i would go out like i would do a road trip out east and just to go photograph darters if i had the equipment to do it you know, like they're yeah. i aspire to do that at some point there's some really really cool fish um especially in the southeastern united states but yeah actually uh my most successful fishing trip ever was that uh spring break trip down in florida oh nice so Catch yeah like uh, ass and stuff uh i caught a couple of uh is it smallmouth or largemouth that are largemouth yeah yeah caught like one or two largemouth yeah caught quite a few of the those uh invasive cichlid species cichlids, yeah. Yeah. uh juvenile barracuda oh wow that's that's a cool yeah. one and i actually caught a florida gar so nice and i would have caught a second one if it didn't throw a hook but you know story from that gar, gar really really cool did you see any alligator gar when you were interning at gator country no i did not yeah. it's like it's everyone's going like did you see this here do you see, at gator country do you see that there at gator country and i'm like no i'm i was just kind of yeah. boring intern who didn't have a car down there so i couldn't <laughs> oh, go anywhere i got you yeah they're um they're pretty common around there if you just go walk around like any of the canals you'll see them coming up they'll surface oh, for air really but really big ones too like, you know they get six seven feet long really impressive fish yeah you do any uh hunting i've always wanted to but yeah. just my both my parents were never really into hunting never but i do have it. a lot of, yeah. i'll do have a lot of family members especially on my mom's side of the family who are really into hunting and, and now my some... brother now my brother is getting into crossbow hunting so i'm hoping to go with him nice. sometime. but yeah but i'm a, more interested in like the actual like uh uh prepping and preserving part like i really want to try like smoking and preserving like a whole deer sometime or something yeah like that. yeah that's cool kind of, kind of like that all at home preservation yeah stuff. if you ever did deer hunt up there i understand ohio has like huge deer <laughs> yeah i think i've heard that we're like tied with iowa for the largest uh whitetail in the u.s yeah yeah because i uh i believe like around 1900 whitetail actually went extinct in ohio so i think uh, the government like reintroduced specific like bloodlines of really big deer back yeah. here. So, yeah, that's one. A lot of people don't realize like deer are overabundant now. Like their populations oh. in, in many areas are um, unsustainable greater areas. than greater than their nat like than they ever were naturally. Yeah, um, all the predators you know, are gone. So they benefit from yeah they benefit from human land use practices and you know all the predators are gone. But there was a time when deer were 
like largely gone from the North American landscape in many areas. Yeah. And it was, it were, it was sportsmen. It, it was hunters that, you know, brought them back. Bring them back. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing. Not, even with a lot of the, um, like even with a lot of birds, you know, like oh yeah, in general, like there were, they have these market hunts that were going out, market hunters going out and killing, you know, thousands of ducks at a time to to sell to the restaurants, and they're going out killing herons and egrets, and it it, it was like hunters that realize this is not sustainable. You know, we have to yeah. we want to continue hunting ducks. We can't allow market hunters to go out and kill thousands at a time because it's not. The system can't sustain itself like that. It's not sustainable at all. But yeah, a lot of people don't, they don't understand the difference between like poaching and you know managed hunting or market yeah, hunting yeah. versus you know hunting for uh, under a you know a sport hunting. season sport hunting. Yeah, there's a big difference. Yeah, like uh, actually, like the holy grail of uh, birding in Ohio is large part due to a local hunting club. Is it really? Yeah. So up yeah. on uh. Uh, shore of Lake Erie. It's like central, I want to say central southern shore of Lake Erie. It's kind of close towards, closer towards Sandusky, which for people who don't know Ohio, uh, eastern end, northeastern end is Cleveland. <clears throat> Northwestern end is like Sandusky and Toledo. Okay. So it's more like the central, west central coast of Lake Erie. Yeah. It's a place called McGee Marsh. And I've heard of McGee Marsh. Yeah, I think I might have mentioned or, it to you before. Maybe you did, or like it's a great place to see migrating uh, warblers, right? Especially other songbirds. Yeah. Yeah. Other neotropical migrants. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's like, you know, this coastal marsh that's been preserved by the local hunting club that said, okay, it said basically to the ODNR, okay, we'll, we'll give this land over to you to, for, to be, you know, be protected and incorporated into the whole state park system, you know build boardwalks out to the marshes for people to go birding and stuff like that. But we have to be allowed to go, you know, out duck and geese and waterfowl yeah. hunting during their yeah, migration. Yeah. So you can't go onto Lakeshore and just find like empty shell casings on, in the middle of a state park. So yeah, well, it's kind of a bit funny, but I've been to yeah. McGee Marsh two times or three times now. And you do see quite a, a lot of warblers, like really fast. You can just check off a lot of warblers. If you hit yeah. it right because that's where they all stop over to refuel and rest right before they cross over the lake to get into Canada. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. When they're going to their summer or spring breeding grounds. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually do have a funny story. Like I'm, you mentioned a few times that birders are kind of considered to be the dark side a little bit. Yeah. I always joke about that because I come from the herb community primarily, yeah. uh, but yeah, birding is awesome. I freaking love birds. Uh, in fact, I might just abandon herbs altogether someday. Heresy. Chase, <laughs> chase birds. But uh, uh, one of my funniest stories I ever had was uh, I was out there. This would be the, my sophomore year of high school when I was taking that bio two class because we did like an organized like weekend trip, Saturday morning trip up there. To McGee Marsh. The, yeah. Yeah. And we were just – I was up on the boardwalk, and I saw like some bird would have – up in the top of a tree a bit of a ways off that had a little bit of reddish color moving around so you know try to focus my binox on it i just kind of muttered underneath my breath a little bit what is that thing and all of a sudden this little old lady standing right next to me just said get a grip it's an oriole <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah 
yeah, I've, I've, I've interacted with a lot of older folks yeah. on my birding adventures. You go to these birding hotspots and it's mainly an older crowd. Yeah. Um, it's like some the, of them, my experience is some of them, they're very excited to see that young people are getting interested in birds. Uh, but then others, they're kind of, uh, they're kind of like, like intimidated that there are young people that perhaps might know more than them about wildlife. <laughs> I don't know if that <laughs> was, know it or, but you know, yeah, she was, she was clearly one of those types of birders that was like, you know, know a couple that went around the country in a camper. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, the type. No, I, I aspire to be that type someday. So I can't <laughs> talk too much shit, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, when I was, when, when I was doing that whole birding course with, uh, Mrs. Frank, he said, he admitted that this was kind of a heretical practice among some birders, but he used that, uh, Merlin app by Cornell labs. To, I, love Mer- I love the Merlin bird yeah. idea. Yeah. But he uh, would like use the call, the calls on it. To call, call yeah. In yeah, call, yeah. yeah but, that's, I don't know what the, like I've talked to birders about the ethics of that. And it, apparently if it's not during like the breeding season and you're not really altering their, their, you know, breeding behavior. It's not that big of a problem. Yeah. You know, I don't know much about the ethics of it either, but I, mean, I still, I still teaching, use it. You were teaching in high school class. So he was just trying <laughs> yeah. to get certain birds get kids, in. Get, and get kids, you know, interested in birds. You know. Yeah. So, so like we would sometimes actually call in a barred owls in the middle of the day, this one spot in Mohican state park. Yeah. So that That's was cool. always funny to play the, the barred owl caterwaul. Yeah, with a bunch of hikers walking by, they look <laughs> over at you like, "Are they murdering a cat or something?" <laughs> if you never hear a barred out barred owl wall, it is one of the weirdest noises nature has to offer. I'm about to I'm about to pull up right now. Oh crap! I gotta upload my my Merlin app. I haven't used it in so long. Birding for me is usually a, a winter early spring activity. Yeah. Um. I always look forward to it, but, you know, I do get a little rusty throughout the year, uh, you know, sp- summer and fall. I don't bird as much. Um, yeah. um, for people that don't bird and you want to get into birding, you need to download the Merlin bird ID app and download eBird. Yeah. So those are the two apps you need and your account, like they're, they're connected. Um, so when you go use eBird and you're, pu- you know, putting species observations on there your it'll that data will be on your merlin app and you'll have your life list all neat and organized Uh, but the main thing with the merlin app is you can type in the area you're in and a list of birds that have been observed in that area will pop up and it's much easier to to go ahead and figure out what you're looking at yeah you can also use different filters like what it was like was it flying waiting yeah yeah it gets pretty detailed what size was it what what were his primary yeah. colors? Oh, so usually it, I can figure it like, you know, you can figure it out yeah. just by, you know, basic, yeah. just a picture of it. But um, I, I've found Merlin to be very valuable. Um, and then when you're, you know, using eBird, you're, you're contributing to hoping, yeah. ornithology. You're contributing to bird. Like the, there's so many like ornithologists out there that like use eBird data to understand um, yeah. bird trends. And the trend is birds are declining rapidly. So get out there and observe birds. Um, Audubon, I guess it was Audubon published a study uh, a couple of years ago. Like, we've like, lost, nine, like a, what, a billion songbirds or something like that? Like uh, nine, Yeah, nine. like we've lost so many songbirds, like a billion songbirds to 
various things. Um, Primarily cats. Cats are a big one. Um, feral, you know, feral cats, like house cats that really, yeah. you know, let let out and run wild and free. They play a huge role. Um, window strikes, building strikes. Uh, yeah. Those are some of the primary threats to birds. And yeah, we definitely we definitely need to care about our, our native songbirds. They're for one, they're just fun to watch, but they're also very yeah. you know, just intrinsically valuable to ecosystems in many different ways. For some uh, reason, I can never uh, find find owls whenever I look it up. So it's always yeah. frustrating me. So when I got into birds, I started with raptors. Yeah. And that's kind of your gateway in. But then like the first time you, you, you go ex- experience spring migration and you see all the diversity of warblers and the tanagers and the orioles, like it's like the first time you see like those bright colors of one of those war- warblers or orioles moving through the brush, like you're, yeah. you get such an adrenaline rush. Yeah. Um, my only complaint with warblers is as a photographer, they're very frustrating. <laughs> Always bouncing around. They bounce yeah. around. And then like where I'm photographing them. Um, so like along the upper Texas coast, we have these, uh, stands of live oaks these little woodlots that are right on the beach and that's really the first place that these warblers and these other neotropical migrants hit when they're migrating from central and south america and so they stop they stop there and they rest up and they fuel up um um, but like that habitat it's dark and it's thick and they're just hard to photograph so it's kind of frustrating from a photography standpoint but they're still fun to watch regardless but just reflect on the fact that these little birds fly across the entire gulf of mexico every year twice a year there and back and they're not even counting hunting hummingbirds as well and little hummingbirds yeah it's mind-boggling um well i do think they just like fly up to the jet to the jet stream and just let go probably oh surely yeah they they, surely they're they're using their using the jet stream they just go along Uh, like a bit of pollen almost that thing it's getting floating around then you get like during uh spring migration um when they're flying back back up north and then like a north wind starts blowing they're just screwed you know they got to land wherever and my understanding is a lot a lot of them die you know when when they get hit with the wrong wind when they're flying across the gulf just kind of part of the deal you know some of them are gonna end up you know running out of energy um, but then you'll see like pictures of them on boats, like tugboats and shit and barges and oil rigs and like anywhere they can land out there in the open water. Just, just resting up. Really crazy. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, cerulean warblers or not. I have. I have them on my life list, but I have not got a photograph yet. So I, I'm still like in my mind, I'm like, I've seen them, but haven't checked that box completely because I, I like to get a photo, like a proper photo. Yeah, because I actually live right right next to one of their uh, nesting areas. Oh, so. nice. That's a, see, that I would like to, that's the kind of area I need to go to get a good photograph of one because when they're just migrating through, they're, they're so hard to photograph. Yeah, thing is, they're also kind of hard to photograph because they're a canopy species. So, yeah, they're pretty far out. Yeah. But they actually do respond pretty well to calls. So, yeah, that's not the only reason I've ever seen ceruleans is I mean, I can hear them call when I go walk around uh, Mahika State Park, which is 
I'm kind of lucky to be blessed by living like right next to a state park that yeah, is yeah. part of the unglaciated part of the Appalachian Plateau. Yeah. Because that's Ceruleans has this really weird like niche uh, nesting habitat, which is the canopies of rippering woodlands, especially yeah. the val- valleys with yeah. rippering woodlands. Yeah. I don't know why they're so specialized now. I guess that's due to some of their diet, probably. Yeah. Yeah. But, but those that's are. Cool beautiful little gems they're beautiful yeah they're really pretty um trying to think i'm like i've gotten a single good photo of any of the really nice warblers yet i've gotten plenty of good photos of the of the yellow rumps they're kind of the the common one that will hang out around southeast texas yeah for much of the year um but the sad thing is when they're here in the winter they're like not in breeding plumage so they're not really much to look at really really dull looking bird real dull and you can barely see a little yellow yellow on the rump but um yeah they're birds are challenging to me with photography they're just the the songbirds are tough um, yeah but uh well with waterfowl but yeah songbirds are especially warbirds. yeah but part of that uh birding course i took in high school yeah yeah uh that teacher made us like write up our own uh bird book of oh, wow. what we spotted what we saw both in class and encouraged us you know do our own independent yeah. birding yep. outside yep but we're also in, in to, on top of like writing down all like the life history stuff of that the birds we saw. We also had to draw all the birds we saw, so that way oh, we had to learn all. That's their, where I'm. That's where I'm out. I can't draw. I'm not good at drawing either. But it's I'm good. For, it's good to do though to learn their learn their traits. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of a, how I got concretely uh, placed all their a lot of identification traits into them. So that definitely did help you drawing them. Yeah. Yeah. I was so, encouraged. I was encouraged to do that. I took ornithology in college, and we were encouraged to draw them for because, like, for our field component, we had to go out and just go e-birding on our own time, and yeah, um, you know, list all the speed, same sort of thing. But it was optional to draw them. I opted out of it. <laughs> I did draw it. Yeah, but, but I, my my life my bird list for the semester was really good. I got like I think I got the most in the class, so I was hmm. made up for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh i don't know do you guys get uh viris out down there viris man i think yeah i think so damn i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say yes or no i don't know i'm gonna go with i don't know because i think yes there are at least like migrants that come through okay but yeah i guess kind of nice part of ohio is it is a lot of those birds nest up here even though another significant part are just passing through to get to Ontario. Yeah. But we have viris around here. And if you never hear those things call, it is again, a really weird call. It's almost like a synthetic electrical sound almost. Interesting. But there's this one place along this one trail. Oh, uh, it's a, it's a thrush. Yeah. It's it's a thrush. thrush family. Yeah. Surely we do. I mean, we had, we have other thrushes here. Ah, good. Well, the only place I've ever really seen to find them is, uh, Again, in like a heavily wooded Ripperine Valley. As okay, well as yeah. spot. But like, I remember one time I was just out, you know, birding with uh, my brother and my cousin. And I kept hearing this bird call. And I knew what it was. It was like, I knew it began with a, the name of the bird began with a V. It was like right to my brain. And I just kept on thinking, I want to say Vireo, but I know it's not a Vireo. Yeah, yeah. Until I eventually came across Viri and it was like, Viri. of course that's what it is. Yeah. So I yeah. just play the, I just play that call and 
all of a sudden this bird just came right out and just like bouncing around like five feet away from me. <laughs> and yeah. right next to these uh, hemlock falls. I, I really yeah. like uh, the thrush, the thrushes. Yeah. They're a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, we have a yeah. few thrushes around here. Yeah. Most obviously the most prominent being uh, the American uh, robins, which I mean, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like now at this point, it's like who gives a crap about them? <laughs> you know, it's. <laughs> really kind of jacked up uh i can tie this back to my interest in natural history because teddy roosevelt was the same way when he was a kid he liked to go out and shoot songbirds because (laughs) he liked to get them in his hands like he liked to see them up close i was the same way when i was a kid and it's very illegal obviously because of the migratory bird treaty act yeah you know we have a lot of protections for birds now thankfully uh when i was a kid it was like uh it was like common to go out and like hunt robins when they're migrating through with your pellet gun and we would eat them like we'd you know cook them over a fire um so i've always always loved robins for that we called it the robin run when they would come down in the winter yeah it's like the first sign of of uh falling winter is when you see the robins showing up in the hundreds and then you go get your pellet gun and you know go neighborhood bird hunting (laughs) very illegal we don't promote illegal uh hunting of of our native birds here on this podcast, but yeah. uh, I, do I, like to re- I do like to reflect on, on my journey as a naturalist and an outdoors person. Um, because, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I, I did that, but it was because I liked them, you know, it wasn't because I liked killing things. It was because I like to like see them up close, you know, like when I had yeah. it in hand, it was just so cool to me and it definitely contributed to my interest in birds. Um, they also tasted really good. <laughs> They're really tasty. Oh, extra bonus, but right. But uh, yeah, yeah, you should really come up sometime. I'm, when you come up, I should really try and find a lot of stuff around here I haven't found before. Like, uh, yeah, one thing I really want to find is uh, hellbenders. Yeah, I, I would love to see a hellbender. Um, They're not around where I'm at specifically. They're more like a uh, southeast Ohio up in the like a more Appalachian okay, yeah. higher, you know, elevation, faster flowing, clear streams. Very high quality streams. Yeah. High dissolved oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually think, fascinating animals. Yeah. I think I have a contact with, uh, rec- I think I have an email of a researcher who actually does studies with them. I have to double check yeah. though before I say anything. That's, but, yeah. Right. But that'd be a preferable. Yeah. If you want to see them in the wild, because I guess most states, um, well, I guess they got that federal protection or is it all state? I might have federal, I to double check, but. Uh, you definitely don't want to go out, you know, disturbing hellbenders without, you know, without a good reason to do so with yeah, actual scientists. Or anything like that, that'd be, yeah. yeah. If you're going to go see them, you need to do it. You know, you could go out, I guess, just see them in the water, but if you're going to get anywhere close to them or anything, you know, you'd want to be with people that are working with that species. Yeah. They're actually uh, you know, catching them for research purposes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, hellbenders are a weird animal overall because they are. they're the largest amphibian native to North America. Yep. They belong to the same family as those Japanese exactly. and Chinese giant salamanders. Cryptobranchidae. Yeah. Branchidae. Yeah. yeah. You know, very, very, all... A very ancient group. Yeah. Of salamanders. Yeah. My understanding. But, uh, fully aquatic and all that stuff and yep. like you mentioned in uh your previous episode they did external external fertilization, external fertilization. Yeah. 
also I was thinking of when, when he when my buddy was talking about Nagar, I was I just it's just like a light popped up in my head. I was like, there's a salamander that have similar life history traits that I was, you know. It's kind of yeah. off a little bit, but I corrected myself. So yeah, <laughs> you get Brian points that. I, could, other... I couldn't remember which which group of salamanders or which species it was. But yes, yeah, but, uh, yeah, but yeah, imbecimus and all those salamanders. Yeah, I don't weird because they had that internal fertilization, whereas you know, like neurons have external. Yeah, but like those one particular group of salamanders, just for some reason, they do external. Yeah, and it might be something to do with. I guess maybe they're because they're fully aquatic, but. Yeah. yeah. Do you know much about how it actually works with hellbenders? I actually can't remember much learning about uh, that. Going off the base notes, basically uh, a male, I think, will dig out like a nest of some yeah. sort. I knew that. Yeah. And, you know, get a quarter female in there yep. and you know, fertilize eggs. And I think the male actually guards the nest <laughs> until they hatch. I knew there's something weird with it. Yeah. Like the males have a lot of, a lot of investment. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Marble salamanders do some uh, egg protection as well. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I don't know, uh, do they breed the same time of year down there as they do? Yeah, they, so they're the they're the early breeders. They they lay their eggs in dry ephemeral basins, and then yeah, they're like late winter. The, yeah, yeah. You'll flip them like right, probably in a couple of weeks, I would assume. Um, here it's it's like yeah, November, December, before those ponds fill up, you'll find them. Really interesting. Yeah, but I actually live just a you know. A little bit, not a little bit, maybe like an hour or two drive north of the northern part of uh, Opakum's range. Okay. But funny thing, when I was in that high school class, uh, another teacher came in to talk with Mr. Frank and said, hey, I found these marble salamanders on my property. And they're like contacting ODNR about, I was like, they found these, you know, marble salamanders out in, on my woods, you know, so far north of their range. Yeah. I started asking about it. I was like, well, yeah, I did go down uh, to central Ohio a week ago and brought back a w- load of wood. So, oh, dang. But are there, um, but that, uh, n- weird northern pocket brings me now to another Ohio herp, which we also share with you. Uh, something very dear to both of us, even though I've never been able to find it. Hortus. Uh, yeah, Hortus. Yeah. Hortus. Uh, Hortus. so Hortus used to be, you know, Timber rattlesnakes used to be a lot more widespread in the forested parts of forested mountainous hilly parts of Ohio. Yeah. So they used to be found all the way up around here, I think. Yeah. But now they're extremely limited to like the extreme southern and southeastern part of the state. To the to the mountaintops. I'll say more along the lines of to the less developed parts. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, it's cool country out there. So well, it used to be cool country, but so what's the main cause of their decline? Just habitat loss out there. I imagine it's pro- predominantly habitat loss and uh, persecution. Yeah, yeah. My understanding: but, some some states actually have a harvest. They have like a managed harvest. I think like Pennsylvania. I think I have heard of Pennsylvania. They manage, they manage timber rattlesnakes like a game species, which it's kind of weird thinking about it. But like, man, I wish Texas would do that with our Western Diamondbacks. Or are they like uh, overpopulated, or is it just like the lack of regulation? Well, no, it's just the fact that. Uh, we have the roundups here and there's no management yeah. like I, i'm the roundups are not gonna go away there's too much money in it um yeah those those groups have a lot of power um but if i just wish texas parks and wildlife would come up with some sort of management like treat them like a game species that way these guys aren't going out you know gassing burrows you know pouring gasoline yeah. through in mammal That's... burrows and harvesting 
you know, hundreds of thousands of them every year, surely they're having an impact, a local impact in certain areas, you know, across the range, the, the, the Western Diamondback is, you know, doing well, but uh, my understanding is like around Sweetwater, whether where that roundup, the main roundup is located. Yeah. Um, like there aren't, they aren't doing very well because they've been, you know, wiped out by the roundup. Yeah. They got to go further and further out throughout the state to get them. So, mm. but yeah, tim- timber rattlesnakes are uh, awesome animals. Um, they were delisted but, uh, in the state here yeah, recently. Yeah, it's all that on your uh, last podcast episode you yeah. did. Yeah. yeah, which, you know, it's, and I think it was not a terrible thing. I'm, the numbers, if they're doing fine, you know, we should focus yeah. on the other species that need need more attention, so. Yeah, but uh, what, what I was trying to, well, the point was I was going to was recently, like a few years ago, they actually found like this, giant like 20 year old female oh, wow. uh, timber that was like unfortunately she was a dor yeah but she was like a, a hundred miles north of where they're, they're for this northern spotting okay and they keep on saying that they've seen like one or two others like crossing roads around that one spot so there might be like a little refugia that i've wanted to check out for yeah. a while so if you're up if you're up here, we... i need to i need to go man um I don't think much about that part of the, the world, to be honest. <laughs> I know we're kind of, uh, forgetable every, about every, state, but... but one thing I, I, you know, I've learned is every state, every country, every, every region in the world has something to appreciate when it comes to wildlife. Yeah. Um, you know, even, you know, even some of the most boring parts of the Midwest, you go there and there's gotta be something to appreciate. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just gotta, you gotta learn about the, the natural history and you know get out and look for stuff yeah uh yeah but we also i mean i'm kind of jealous of you because you have, do have that higher like snake and diversity and lizard diversity it's actually only uh three species of lizard native to all of ohio oh wow uh, yeah you got a, what, a uh, couple skinks and a scoloperus uh by that you mean eastern fence lizard yeah 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 eastern yeah fence, yeah and um but ground skinks well, i actually live literally just north of the eastern fence lizard range oh wow because they live in the unglaciated part and i live just on the opposite side of the glaciated part gotcha so but we have like a you know typical five lines skink yep. down more yep. central southern end yeah uh, the skink i think is the other one is uh you broad, know, like, broad broad-headed, broad-headed maybe. yeah you know arboreal one very, we actually very... Have, talk about uh, all the invasive of florida Ohio actually has an invasive lizard species. Really? Yeah. Which, uh, European which, which lizard? Oh, it's a European species. Okay. European wall lizard. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. See, when you think of uh, invasive, you think of the more tropical species that yeah get brought here, and they you know they survive in areas like South Florida because of the warm climate. Uh, yeah, but like uh, down in Cincinnati, like back in the fifties, some guy went over to northern Italy for vacation, caught a few of those lizards, put them in his. Uh, suitcase brought back put them out in his backyard now the heck? they're actually spreading around uh southwest ohio down to like north central kentucky and southeast indiana so wow. kind of that tri-state area starting to become uh eastern uh european fence lizard habitat so they are they potentially a threat to native fence i haven't lizard? heard anything i think they're primarily like insectivores so yeah. they probably stick to the urban areas too yeah, yeah. so it's kind of weird you know having this like 
not that many native herbs and all of a sudden you just have this one invasive <laughs> lizard. Have you seen them? I have not, but I have family down there and who have seen it. So nice. But uh and in terms of like, but yeah, like a lot more venomous snakes down there than we do. Like we yeah. only have uh three like aforementioned timber, eastern yeah. Massasaga, which sadly might actually be extirpated at this point. Yeah. Just because they're a wetland species and you know, wetlands, wetlands are yeah. Wetlands are going fast. Um you know all across the u.s but there there are you know like the clean water act is making a big difference like nowadays if if someone's going to do work in wetlands they have to you know restore wetlands off off site somewhere to offset their damages so going forward i think um you know wetland losses won't be as problematic a lot of a lot of areas it's it's too late you know yeah yeah but and then uh, Northern Copperhead would probably be the most okay. common and widespread, but and they're still they used, abundant. Uh, in Central and Southern Ohio, yeah, but they used yeah. to be around where I lived. Yeah, in fact, probably in my lifetime, they're still around here. But this actually ties into Spring, Mr. Spring again. He actually had the uh, last a Copperhead wild Copperhead found in my county. Oh wow! That was yeah. It's like some park ranger found it and like gave it to him to keep and kept it in the classroom. And it's like around the year two thousand. And, you know, back then during the summer months, they like leave the doors open during the summer, you know, keep the air conditioning down. Apparently someone just walked in and took it and walked out. So oh. he had the last, he had the last copperhead native to Ashley County. So oh, well, he does, he does say that he think suspects there's some like far Southern Ashley County around like some like sandstone quarries and sandstone yeah. fences and stuff like that. So I've been poking around there a little bit, but haven't really found anything yet. If I were a naturalist stuck in that terrible place of Ohio, I would spend my time <laughs> trying to figure, trying to, uh, trying to survey as much of the of that state as I can for herps and 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 try to help the state wildlife agency um, with you know conserving those herps that are declining. Yeah. Um, just going out doing road cruise, going road cruising and yeah. collecting specimens. I don't know if you there's a university that has like a a wildlife collection or museum collection where you can contribute specimens probably to probably Ohio State, but that's probably um probably something to look into, you know, if you want to contribute yeah. to your local herb conservation. Yeah, but the funny thing is I find like more herbs, it seems like when just by driving back home from work or something <laughs> like that, than I do road cruising. Like when I'm road cruising, only thing I find are decays, brown snakes, <laughs> uh northern leopard frogs and toads. Sounds about so, right. American toads. Yeah. 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 Actually, when I went to uh, what the biggest road cruise I did this spring, I found a whole toad migration, breeding migration oh, wow. along this one road. I was just going on. I saw all the probably saw like over a thousand toads hopping across it. Wow. A lot of them were like in Amplexus as well and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. So. That's cool. Yeah. I like seeing stuff like that. Yeah. I posted on my Instagram, but we haven't talked about anurins at all. So I got American toads, northern leopard frogs, got peepers, wood frogs, oh, I'm yeah. assuming. Oh, yeah. That's actually one of the species we found during uh, uh, that class. Yeah. Yeah. Wood frogs are down. fascinating, do they? Like, they freeze and fall out. Freeze. <laughs> like, freaking wild. Um, what else? You got, you got uh, some chorus frogs, Sudacris. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I don't know. Which one. Some few other ones. You know, bullfrog, obviously. Well, yeah, bullfrog. Much of you know, kind green of green frogs. Yeah, we have uh, 
Let's see here. We have, uh, I can't remember the two species. They're the ones that have that, uh, like tiger patterning on the inside of their hind leg. Oh, the tree frogs. Yeah. The, I think it's, uh, Cope, what? Gray tree Copes? frog or Cope's gray tree frog. Copes and grays. I can't remember. Yeah. Other species, but those, those are also really weird because they the look chrom- really identical, but they have different calls. And one is, has, uh, twice as many chromosomes. Yeah. As the other. Yes. Chromosome. Just like the, the Salo Zambistima. You're talking yeah. about yeah well i mean be more their calls are very distinct too if you ever yeah. hear them I've, yeah i hear them a lot because uh uh we have you know an outdoor pool that yep. is an above ground pool but it's such they a pain still... to take down that we leave it up partly filled during the winter and early yeah. spring so we get a ton of tree frogs around there every and spring it's yeah. providing amphibian habitat <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so that's probably like the most common herp i see is uh <laughs> tree frogs i was uh this this year I got a I got a lot of cool experiences with frogs because um, of my job I was working for the Natural yeah. Resource Institute at AM. and I was I got to do Houston toad research and chicken turtle research so I spent a lot of time out in wetlands and uh, one wetland had both copes and gray tree frogs and their 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 calls were very distinct I was surprised yeah. I, I thought it would be you know you had to really listen but it was it was pretty obvious um, but you get getting into you know chorus of tree frogs pretty cool yeah all spring papers yeah driving you crazy trying to sleep at night yeah but uh uh it's a bit of a change in subject i think was it you who i was talking to or someone else who want really wanted to see those uh black faced uh eastern gray squirrels that you maybe maybe somebody else we may have i've I've talked about black squirrels recently so maybe it was me we have we have melanistic uh, fox squirrels here, but not gray, not grays. Yeah, because up here we have uh, melanistic gray squirrels. Like just my hometown, you can just see them walk crossing the street and stuff like that. So, I saw a rock squirrel in the Edwards Plateau in Central Texas this weekend, which is kind of neat. They're um, like they look like a big gray squirrel, and they live <laughs> in the they live in the limestone outcrops. Pretty neat. <laughs> Try to get a photograph, but the lighting was terrible. I was out looking for alligator lizards, actually. Um, nice. That's like the that's like the top lizard in Texas, I think. It's got to be the, the um, alligator lizard. But no, I didn't see any. Um, the area I keep going to, they, it's kind of a popular spot, and there's a bunch of iNaturalist records there now. And you know, there's there could be people going out there handling them too much or collecting them or yeah also just a lot more people moving to austin and those those trails just have so much foot traffic i can imagine that probably has an effect on the on the wildlife that yeah. is adjacent to the trail so there are probably multiple factors uh, but I, I i talked to a guy out there that um has been finding alligator lizards on that trail for you know 15 years and he said he's seen a major decline in his observations over the past couple of years like he used to he could go out and find one every time he went but now he's got to, you know, go out there a couple of times before he gets one. Yeah. Kind of a bummer. Yeah. They're uh, really neat. Have you, have you thought much about alligator lizards? Like the, uh, not really. I've seen them like passing like herpeticulture and stuff like that. So, yeah. but never like really seen my interest. So I will, I mean, if I found a bronia are obviously the, a bronia are like the top, top tier, you know, be cool to go see those someday. One of the, yeah. any of the bronia species. Yeah really neat lizards yeah well the highest diversity of uh lizards i ever saw in the wild would be uh it's been 
Last week of July 2020, I uh, went out with Matthew Minio to visit an, that other guy that we mentioned before who lives out in uh, southwest Utah in St. George, okay. Utah. Oh, I remember, yeah, yeah, you went to Utah. You got some really cool stuff there. Yeah, so found like a, a great basin rattlesnake. We found like three of those. Yeah. Yeah, one of those was in his front yard, so. Yeah, I remember you posting that or maybe you snapped yeah. at me or something. Yeah, but – like yeah but uh let's see here that's like that we're like in like you know like i said southwest utah but we also went to like northwest arizona and into nevada a little bit looking around for stuff yeah we really wanted to find uh mojave rattlesnakes but we just couldn't find them so kind of left us all a little bit of bad taste in our mouth on that one but yeah you saw saw plenty of cool stuff there yeah what i'm talking about specifically is the lizards we found i mean yeah i found like a little baby like desert tortoise like I was just walking along a trail and I almost stepped on. It. I was like, "Oh, finding your first native wild tortoise is a pretty cool experience." Yeah, I mean, I, found, I, mean, I found box turtles around a hot where I live occasion on a rare, rare occasion. Yeah, but um, but in terms of lizards, like we like found and caught a chuckwalla. You know, that's cool. Kind of your typical that's a, that's a childhood. Lizard. That's a childhood bucket list, or you know. Yeah, well, I still haven't seen one yet. Um, and I've been in the range yet, in fact. Yeah, then uh desert iguanas, those yes. things were those things were difficult to catch, to say the least. Yes. But uh we found those specifically uh along along the interstate, just off the interstate in a northwestern corner of Arizona. Yep. And we like just pulled them on the roadside along basically alongside a small cemetery, strangely enough. And we're just chasing lizards right next to the cemetery. So <laughs> it's kind of odd experience. That's awesome. Um, so your zebra lizards, I think is what they're called. There's like that. Like you saw, you saw a picture that posted like that, that really weird, like shovel face with yeah. the, the underbelly that had that blue and uh, like neon blue and black striping and stuff like that. Yeah. Those were, uh, those were really freaky looking animal. Yeah. The, probably the big one would be the uh, long-nosed leopard lizards we found. Okay. That's a neat one. Yeah, because those guys are actually like a diurnal predatory lizard, so. Yeah. Kind of like a kind of like a collared lizard almost, so. Yeah. Honestly, I don't, I don't know much about the lizards out that way. I, I don't know. Really there's like, good I'm not going to say I'm an expert either on, on an either. I'd like, to, I'd like to go out there and get a feel for them, though. Yeah, I but, still have a lot. Uh, Texas has a ton of species. I still have, we have all these race runners and got some scloppers I still need to see and yeah, alligator lizard, so a um, couple skinks, but yeah, I, I like lizards a lot, but yeah, they're I I, I do overlook them a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, some reason snakes just seem a little bit more charismatic. I would love to like if I ever could go to Mexico, I'd love to see some of their. Spiny lizards, they're scaloporous, yeah, really cool ones. Um, you know, alligator lizards, and uh, of course, I would love to see any Gila, Giladerma, oh, definitely um, species. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. I got to, I've held them in captivity before, they're really laid back, they're like big puppy dogs. Uh, that varies from individual to individual. Like most, for most part, from my experience, they are kind of laid back, but yeah. we had this one really big uh, bead lizard at a Cerberitarium. We called him uh, Sauron. 
Yeah. Because whenever, you know, most of the time he would, he's like hiding away, but as soon as we like open it up to like, I don't know, like spray him down or feed him or anything like that. As soon as he saw a human beings, his blood pressure would go up and his <laughs> eyes start bulging out of his head and they get all veiny, just like that, you know, fiery Jeez. eye from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> That's crazy. So he, he was a, he was a mean old lizard, <laughs> to say the least. Actually, yeah. I, Actually, I had to hold him while he got his uh, nails trimmed, so that was kind of weird. Damn. That's cool. You ever, oh, man, you, uh, haven't, you haven't lived oh, until yeah. you with uh, trimmed uh, helodermid nails. Yeah. That's, that's got to be an interesting experience. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably wrap it up here soon, man. We've been, uh, we've been going yeah. for a while. We've, uh, we've covered many, yeah. different, many different taxa at this point. <laughs> yeah, my throat's getting a little sore, so. Yeah. Well, all right, man. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for yeah. for one for getting me into podcasting, and then now you're on my podcast. So <laughs> great, we got hey. this. Got to do this together. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Like come back some other time when I have some other stuff to talk about, maybe. Yeah, uh, and 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 but you know, before we end here, you guys should definitely check out Nate's podcast. Um, it's Crockcast Podcast. He, him, and uh, Matt interview some of the top people working in the in the field of crocodilian biology um so definitely worth checking out yeah well we're also trying to get other fields yeah, other, trials. other groups too but so far but, y'all, y'all got some big croc people it's just the people i know on facebook yeah. really yeah. but i'm hoping to bring definitely, definitely go check that out um and uh yeah look forward to next time see you all right see ya thanks yep